and we've all been there. We live in the golden age of television. You know, we can, we have more television than we could ever possibly watch. And yet we will scroll through Netflix or Hulu or whatever your streaming platform of preference is and declare that there's nothing to watch. Welcome to Science for the People. I'm Bethany Brookshire, a journalist at Science News and Society for Science and the Public. And it's December, the holiday season uh, for many cultures and religions. It's a time when we get together with family, go to cringy work holiday parties and decorate our houses and prepare special foods and take special trips. Or at least we would, but we can't because it's 2020. Uh, And for many of us, the COVID-19 pandemic is still raging. We're isolated in our homes. And we might be only a few streets away from our friends, but it feels like miles. The holidays are an especially hard time. We have all of these things that we're used to doing, things that make it the holidays. But those things are things with other people, and they're not safe. There are other things that we can do, of course, like we can have fire pits and walk in nature and we can bake things by ourselves. But it's not easy to scrap every tradition you've ever had and try to make new ones. And why is that? In part, it's because rituals are more important than we might have realized. And here to talk us through the importance of rituals is Sujata Gupta, a social science writer at Science News Magazine. Sujata, welcome. Thanks for having me. So first, I wanted to ask, often when I'm reading about, say, like, archaeological finds, they'll find, like, a pot, and they'll say, ah, it had oysters in it. It must have been used for ritual purposes. And this makes me think that it must have been used for some sort of shellfish-based religion, but ritual does not actually always mean religion. What is a ritual? So ritual is often tied with religion, um, just because it's sort of hard to reproduce ritual outside of religion. Not impossible, but definitely hard. Um, and I guess it has sort of two core ideas. One is this um, fixed, very repetitive nature of doing something. But then ritual researchers kind of draw a line between like, a daily habit, like drinking coffee, they would not, many would not say that's a ritual. They say, they say that the ritual also has to be imbued with this symbolic meaning. And so the process of the ritual often matters more than the outcome, which, you know, like my horrible coffee analogy, like if you don't brew a pot of coffee well, or you forget the grinds, like it really matters because you don't have coffee at the end of it. Whereas with um, ritual, um, you know, that symbolic meaning becomes more important. Okay. But there are rituals for an astonishing number of things. Even if, like, drinking coffee or brushing your teeth is not a ritual, it's more of a routine. Um, We do have a lot of, like, an astonishing number of rituals. There's birth, death, weddings, graduations, birthdays. Um, Some people say prayers before they eat. You know, it's amazing just how much of our lives is ritualized. And so I was kind of wondering what, what are rituals for? We have so many. (laughs) What are they for? You know, I think that one of the things that didn't make it into my story is that rituals, um, might have even a neurological basis. And this is pretty controversial, I will say. So, Um, I I interviewed a neuropsychologist and he was trying to understand how rituals work in the brain um, and why we do them. Like, why would we 
you know, some of the most extreme rituals where you walk on coals or something, you know, like, why would we do this to ourselves? And he was saying that um, he believes, at least, that animals even have ritualized behavior. Like if a cat gets lost, it'll go into the woods and just lick itself obsessively. Um, that that licking usually is for cleaning. But in this case, it becomes a way of calming the cat's nerves where it's like, I don't know where I am. So I'm just going to lick and lick and lick. And so he thinks that rituals are actually like a much more basic component of our being um, than than a lot of people give them credit for, that they're sort of wired within us, that these very like calming, repetitive motions actually do something in our bodies. Um, and so that's sort of the evolutionary explanation. And then, of course, there's the more, you know, modern explanations where people go to church because, you know, maybe they find that life is too confusing and that puts some parameters around around a really complicated world or they go because it provides them with a social world that, you know, shares their values they know who belongs in their group. They know who doesn't belong in their group. So it provides a level of clarity in, in a world that can be very complicated. So that actually, that sounds when you were talking about kind of the neurological potential neurological underpinnings, that sounds actually to me a little bit like um, there's a established behavioral phenomenon called stereotypy, um, which is where you will see an animal and, and humans do this too, will perform stereotyped behaviors, which are behaviors that kind of occur always in a particular sequence. Um, and so in a way, a ritual is kind of a behavior performed in a particular sequence, like a stereotyped kind of concept. Um, but yeah, it was interesting. You mentioned that, you know, church might give people this kind of place that organizes their their thoughts. Um, and there is actually this established idea that rituals can help us kind of regulate our emotions. And I was kind of wondering what, what does that mean? When we say regulate our emotions, what does that mean? Well, um, our emotions are sort of all over the place, I suppose. Um, so a lot of the ritual work began with this um, one British anthropologist. Um, actually, I think he was Polish and then moved to Britain. But um, Bronislaw Malinowski, hoping I'm pronouncing that right. He looked at ritual um, among people in New Guinea in the early 1900s. And so he was looking at fishermen specifically. And he noticed that when the fishermen um, stuck close to the shore and it wasn't very dangerous, they attributed their catches to just skill and um, being pretty good at what they do. But when they went farther ashore and things were really dangerous, they had what he called magic. They had just this whole host of rituals. Um, and it was, he decided, so he sort of determined that having those rituals was a way for them to feel safe when so much, like the elements were really not in their control. And so if you think about the pandemic, even like here we are in this moment where so much is out, out of our control. Like we, <laughs> there's a disease circulating that we cannot see that people are getting that they're dying of. And that is really unsettling for a lot of people. And so I remember this one quote, um, I think it was Christine Laguerre. Um, she said that we're sort of in this precise moment and I'm paraphrasing. We're in this precise moment when we really need rituals, um, because we're, life feels so out of control. And yet this is also the time when we can't really engage in those rituals because so many of them are social and involve being with a whole lot of other people. So I'm very interested in kind of this idea that a ritual 
gives us this sense of control. Um, but I mean, that's, that's an illusion, right? You, you know, you don't have real control. Um, you, you know, the, like rituals are, are great, but they don't really necessarily give you control, do they? They don't. They give you a perception of control. And they really only work. I mean, there was one really interesting study um, from the early 2000s, um, Richard Sothis. He um, went to Israel, and I'm going to mess up my wars. But anyway, it was a time of unrest, let's say. And so he observed women who were psalm readers. Um, and half the women, or not even half, them, maybe a third of the women had stayed where the heavy fighting was. And the other half had moved away. And he was trying to figure out if the Psalms, if reading Psalms worked equally well for both sets of women. And he tried, to, he first determined, like, what are your stressors? And there was some overlap, you know, shortage of childcare, um, that sort of thing. But there were also other things. Like the women in the war zone were, of course, very worried about shelling and being hurt and their families. Whereas the women who had left were more worried about sort of logistical concerns, things that they could probably solve on their own or with money or with tangible things. And so he found that when he looked at anxiety levels specifically, that reading Psalms was, was hugely beneficial to the women who had stayed in the war zone, but it really didn't help as much the women who had left. And so it does, it gave the women in the war, war zone that illusion of some control. And they couldn't control what was going on around them or keep their families safe in sort of these meaningful ways. Whereas the women who had left could actually take control of their lives in more meaningful ways. And that ended up mattering more. So it's a lot of it is context dependent. Um, and so going back to the pandemic, like that is why we need rituals now. There's a lot of things we cannot control. And so this is a time when rituals would be extra effective, um, potentially. And there's actually another study um, in Mauritius that found it's not just anxiety levels. This is actually physically reflected in people's heart rates, right? Yeah, that was fascinating. So um, Dimitri Zigalatas went to Mauritius, where there's a pretty large, I think it's the largest religious group are, are the Hindus. And so he wanted to see what, you know, what does doing, going to temple do for them on a physiological level? And so he divided, I think it was like 70 women into two groups. And one half was just sent to a quiet room to contemplate. Um, oh, I missed a step. So they were all supposed to um, prepare a speech to be read in front of about flooding or some sort of like disaster that was really common in that area. So they're supposed to prepare a speech on public safety for public health officials um, it was meant to induce them some stress. They were supposed to feel really nervous about doing this. Yeah, I love um, that. Whenever psychologists want to introduce stress, stress into, um, you know, somebody's life, they do two things. They either make you do public speaking or threaten you with public speaking or they threaten you with math. <laughs> I didn't think about the math side of things. He didn't make them do math, but yeah. Oh, the, a lot of psychology studies make people do math. <laughs> Oh my god, that was—I don't know which one would trip me up more. Um, anyway, so the women were—they um, were—he uh, induced their stress by making them think they had to give a speech. They didn't actually have to give it. It turned out, but so they prepared a speech, and then half were sent to the temple where they could perform their normal rituals. You know, taking the tali and putting it around the fire, giving. Um, giving the gods different sweets, just the things you would do at a temple. And 
The other half went to a quiet room where they contemplated what they had to do. Um, as you can imagine, the half that went to the room um, were more stressed by the end of it. But he had attached them to heart rate monitors. Um, and what he saw, and it's a little counterintuitive, the exact method. So he looked at heart rate variability, which is a marker for resilience. Um, and we know that during like times of stress, the heart rate becomes less variable, so more even, which is counterintuitive. And the time between beats gets shorter. And so he wanted to see, well, what happens to this heart rate variability when the women are stressed? And he saw that the variability was 30% higher among women performing the ritual. So remember, it's backwards from what you would sort of assume in your head. So more variability uh, is kind of relaxed. <laughs> exactly. It's, yeah. It tripped me up every time I wrote it. <laughs> also, I love that heart rate. He says, oh, the space between heartbeats got smaller. That means your heart's going faster. Yeah. Your heart rate is faster. <laughs> it's so backwards. Um, yeah, that was that was really fun in the editing process. Um, but anyway, so basically he finds that the women who um, perform the ritual at the temple are less stressed, and that shows up on these heart rate monitors um, than the women who had to sit quietly in a room and just sort of think about their next the next thing they had to do. So is that because of the ritual or is that because the people who are performing the ritual had a distraction because it sounds like the people who are like stuck in the lab were basically just asked to stew in their own juices right like that's not better <laughs> you know i think that's a really valid question and probably this is sort of an annoying thing to say but probably they need to think through the confounds a little bit more that was a pretty small study um and i think we're really just starting to look at ritual in the body um you know, previously it's been more observational or survey based. And now there's like an effort to actually measure what ritual does to like things like heart rate um, or, you know, in more extreme rituals, like what ritual does to to like heart rate when you're walking on fire or something like that. Yeah. And speaking of walking on fire, I I did not realize you could divide rituals into different types of ritual. Like, to me, I would divide them into like, I don't know, religious versus secular ritual. But no, it's actually there's imagistic and doctrinal rituals. And what what are these? Like, what is the difference? Yeah, so that's a really sort of almost subset of this work. Um, Harvey Whitehouse is a leading ritual researcher. He basically has divided, like you said, these rituals into two categories. You have imagistic rituals are what we sort of stereotypically think about when we think of a ritual. We see people from some exotic part of the world, and I mean that in the total stereotypical sense, like doing something crazy. Um, getting a ton of tattoos, walking on spikes, you know, like there are all manner of ritual all over the world. Um, and those are those extreme rituals that you would think would just make our stress levels go to the moon, but actually do the reverse for people who really need something really meaningful in their lives. These extreme rituals, um, you know, the research has shown that it actually can prove very calming for them. But the other side of it, the more day-to-day -day rituals that we're probably experiencing more of a disruption, honestly, are these doctrinal rituals, which are the, you know, praying before you eat a meal, going to church every Sunday, uh, having your kid kneel at the bedside. I'm not a Christian, so I might be getting this wrong, but kneel at the bedside and say their prayers. Or like if you grew up in the Hindu tradition like I did, like, you know, um, 
going to the temple periodically and offering some food to the to the various gods, um, that sort of thing. It's those day-to-day rituals that for most of us um, are what's profoundly disrupted right now. Um, but I would be really curious to see what happens to the imagistic rituals in particular as people during this moment really begin um, sort of looking for meaning in their lives. Um, will they pursue these more imagistic rituals in greater number in the, you know, quote unquote, after times? Yeah, I was going to say, are we all going to run out and, and get tattoos or <laughs> start skydiving? I, I don't know. Some of us will definitely go, you know, totally gangbangers. Um, that's what Christine Laguerre told me, um, that, you know, we're sort of just pent up like with our thoughts and our concerns in this moment and really looking for meaning. And so people may not turn to religion. I mean, we are just increasingly more secular as a society. And so they will look for maybe um, other activities that sort of mirror what... Um, what looks like ritual. So I spoke with this woman, um, uh, Martha, I don't remember. She's one of Harvey Whitehouse's um, former students. And she um, is a sports psychologist. And she's trying to understand um, what activities sort of mimic that, that synchronous side of ritual. So a lot of ritual, which we haven't talked about yet, is, is social. And a lot of it often has to do with working in tandem with other people. So like if you go into a religious um, building or whatever, you'll probably be doing rituals at the same time as other people. You might be chanting together. You might be singing together. Um, that shared synchrony is really meaningful to us. Um, but as you can imagine, there are a lot of sports that sort of mimic this. So the one that I sort of thought was interesting was they've looked at rowing, um, for instance. And so rowing, you are sort of chanting and rowing at the same exact time. And so I think it's really possible that people, some people will turn toward religion and toward more sort of established ways of practicing ritual. But other people might look for those sort of actively look for those sort of synchronous activities, you know, whether it's rowing or soccer or anything that requires being in a big group and having a preset, you know, number of conditions that, that tells you how to behave. You know, if you wear the the team outfit, that tells you I belong to this group. If you um, practice the same drills every day, you run around the field every day with the group that starts to become a ritual sports gets maybe the closest to ritual, uh, when compared to religion. I was actually thinking just people who go to football games or baseball games, right? There's, you know, even if you're just in the audience, there's like a ritual, there's a call and response um, to cheers, for example. Um, You cheer at specific times. um, You, you know, boo at specific things. There's the seventh inning stretch, (laughs) you know? So there, there is actually kind of a ritualized way of doing things, even if you're just a spectator at these events. I so agree. And if you go back to the definition of ritual, it is imbued with meaning. I mean, on some level, yes, you deeply care if your team wins, but that is not why you necessarily go to the game, right? You're going to be there to support them, to engage in all that collective cheering, um, to eat the hot dog or whatever. Like it, it's imbued with much more meaning than whether or not your team wins or loses. Yeah, so I wonder if maybe attendance at that sort of thing might really end up just skyrocketing. 
I think all of it's going to just be nuts. <laughs> I, I think we saw that. I mean, I don't know. I haven't researched this, but I think that after, you know, you, you kind of read about the roaring 1920s, right? So <laughs> like maybe that's the end result from the 1918, uh, pandemic that swept through the country um, at that point, the flappers and all that. Maybe. So you've mentioned her a couple of times. You were talking to a scientist named Christine Laguerre, um, and I loved she invents imaginary rituals for children. Yes. <laughs> and this is amazing. And I, I can't decide whether it's really fun or an, and adorable or slightly cruel. <laughs> Like the rituals are are very silly. Um, but uh, can you talk to me about like some of the rituals she designs for kids and and why she's designing rituals? Yeah, I love her work. Um, I have two young children, and so you know, I just I kind of connected with the work she was doing. And so she, what she's trying to do is is understand how the need for ritual develops. Um, and so her research and that of others really shows that children are really prone to pick up on ritual, and so. One of her studies that she um, has been doing is is dividing children into groups. And then I think it's like elementary age children. Yeah, ages four to 11. And having them make necklaces, you know, just simple, like be, put beads on a piece of string. But for like half the kids, she makes it into a ritual. She has them, you know, have, I think they have like a team name. They have like a special shirt. They really are taught that like, this is my in-group for for ritual, you know, we're team purple or something like that. And the other team doesn't get any of that feedback. So they just, you know, they just make necklaces. And she's found that the children like really latch onto the ritual. So the kids in the necklace making group, even after the necklace making activity is over, will be watching members of the out group, the other group more closely. Um, whereas the other group doesn't really care. They're not watching, they're not watching the out group more closely. Um, they still wear their necklaces. They, you know, they really have begun to take pride in what they have done. Um, and so I will say that, um, for the pandemic, I have not thought of myself as a very ritualized person. I didn't grow up in a very religious household. Um, but we've always celebrated just the core Hindu holidays. And so, um, this year, Diwali happened, um, right before Thanksgiving and I live six hours from my parents. And so I couldn't for the first time in years make it home. And I have a five-year-old and an eight-year-old. And I, um, I think I literally have never been the one to lead the various rituals that happen at Diwali. If they're really, you know, we don't go crazy. We just have really simple, like, you know, you have the tali, which is that, that metal tray. You put some sweets on it. You put a little tea light on it. Um, you have your deities, like I do have some little statues of deities, and you sort of circle your your tali around the, the gods, um, and then you eat sweets. Anyway, um, I was woefully underprepared when Diwali showed up. Thank God my mom planned a Zoom call, um, and I had my kids get dressed up, and I didn't have anything to wear because I keep all my Indian outfits in Rochester where my family is, because why bother having them here? Um <laughs> And I was so worried. I was like, I have failed as a human being, as a parent, I'm not giving my kids their cultural upbringing. Um, and so we, we were on the Zoom call and we go through the, the ritual together. I'd sort of thrown some stuff together. My mom had actually mailed me sweets, but her. Um, and so we do, we do what we can with sort of like paper plates. And I was just appalled at my, my lack of preparation, but my own daughter, my five year old, kept 
taking the plate and circling it around the deities. I mean, she wanted to do it the next day. That's how meaningful it it felt for her. I mean, she she doesn't remember Diwali that well in, at my parents' place. And so for her, just having this simple ritual um, and having shared it even over Zoom with my family was profoundly meaningful in a way that I found very, very surprising. So anyway, that's very long-winded say, way of saying that Laguerre's work really gets to the heart of why children sort of latch onto those sorts of behaviors. Yeah, well, it also kind of shows the extra stress of dealing with rituals at this time because stre- uh, because rituals are so collective, right? We do the thing about rituals is that you do them together, right? There's there's some rituals that you can do by yourself, but many of them are things that you do together. And so it means that for a lot of people, especially around the holidays, you're trying to prepare to do a ritual that you may have never done before because your family may be the one who does it. And you just show up with like a casserole, right? Yes. <laughs> and then here you are being like, I don't know how to build a gingerbread house. Like, <laughs> what am I supposed to do? Yeah. So I did actually want to ask, you know, we've kind of been talking about how kids latch on to rituals and the importance of rituals. We don't have a lot of our rituals right now. We've been very unmoored from ritual. Why do we miss them? What happens when we don't have them? Um, I don't know. We eat too many cookies and binge watch Netflix. Um, you, know, I don't, I, you know, I think we feel, um, we probably, we feel somewhat, empty. I mean, I mean, I have to say this whole Diwali thing just took me by storm. I didn't even realize that I needed it on some level. Um, it's, it's one of those things like people don't notice their, you know, that they want heat until the radio, you know, the heater breaks down or something like that. So we don't really notice rituals often. They're sort of built into our lives until they're, they're gone. And so I, I think people are feeling that sense of, of longing for something they never not many, for many people who, you know, they haven't taken the time to appreciate what those rituals really mean for them. But I guess the upside is that now we're taking that moment. Like I, you know, I sort of personally as a parent realize like I have to take a greater leadership role in my kids' cultural upbringing. It's not like my parents will be around forever anyway. And I guess personally, and I can only speak for my own, like my own self is that I've sort of tried to take the long view that this is sort of, it's a suspended moment. It's a moment of reflection and preparation and thinking about, well, what do I want? And the after times, what was missing in the before times? Because a lot of times we just do these palliative things to um, make up for the absence of meaning um, or ritual in our lives. We, you know, we can stay very busy in 2020. 2019, we could stay very busy. And here in 2020, all that busyness that might have masked some of the things that were missing in our lives, um, we kind of had to face them head on. And so that's, I'm sort of personally taking that as a bit of a challenge to think about, well, I've been given this opportunity, <laughs> being the generous word to reflect on, on all things. And what do I want moving forward? Because this will eventually end. I think <laughs> one hopes, but I also was interested because, you know, we talked about the importance of ritual and the potential for ritual to kind of regulate our emotions. And so I was actually kind of wondering rituals give us space to express emotions in specific ways. I'm thinking about, for example, people using funerals 
mm-hmm. as a way to publicly express grief. Um, and when you don't have that, how do you express your grief? Um, you know, graduations, they're ways to express joy and pride. And when you don't have that, how do you express that joy and that pride? Um, and so I was wondering, you know, if we are unmoored from our rituals, what does that kind of do to our emotional regulation? Does it stress us out? Do we suffer more from negative emotions or do we like not feel positive ones as strongly? You know, I'm not, I'm not sure to be honest. I mean, I, I think, I think it's a really hard time for people. I mean, I, I talked to a death researcher when I was reaching, which sounds so dark, but she was actually wonderful. Um, uh, when I was researching the story on rituals and she was saying that when you can't have a funeral or if you can't get to a loved one's bedside when they're dying, that can really lead to very complicated feelings around grief. It makes it harder to, to heal from that moment. And so you can sort of imagine that if you apply that sort of very extreme circumstance to more punctuated moments in life, but not quite as extreme as death, um, weddings, funerals, graduations, birthday parties, that whole thing, that our feelings around losing those moments must be very complicated. Um, and that we may not pinpoint them very well. Like, you know, having, if we've taken them largely for granted and assume that we can celebrate these big milestones, which is really important, right? Like it's just really, especially now we don't have as much, we're just in a more secular world and we don't have as many things to celebrate. Um, and so the things we do celebrate have taken on outsized importance, arguably. And so I think probably, probably the best thing we can do is understand that, that we are missing those things that, our feelings around losing those things is complicated that we don't need to blow it off. You know, like I didn't care about my high school graduation or so I thought. Um, But if somebody had taken that away from me, I imagine that that cynicism that my 18 year old self brought to the occasion coupled with losing that um, would have been really, really confusing. Um, And so I think we need to acknowledge those losing those moments, even if we, you know, punt them down the road, that it is complicated and that there is loss around that and that that's normal. And what's interesting is, as we're talking about rituals, you do start to wonder kind of both emotionally what we do without them, but also time-wise, what do we do without them? Because there are no gatherings for Thanksgiving and no graduations and no happy hours. You know, even the tiny little rituals that kind of give structure and variety to our days and months, you know, without them, it's basically March 452nd. Or at least it is to me. Um, you know, and, and sometimes you, you say, well, okay, fine. I don't know what day it is. I don't know what month it is. I'm going to watch all of the Queen's Gambit. And, you know, Avatar The Last Airbender. And (laughs) I'm going to buy the latest World of Warcraft expansion. Not that I did that. And some of us, you know, ended up actually going to happy hours and Thanksgiving. People went out and they did social things anyway. And it wasn't just missing the ritual. We were bored. (laughs) And you've actually been writing about boredom a little bit. I was wondering if you could talk about what boredom is because it seems like and I will be talking to Kendra Pierre Lewis about this later it seems like 
the last thing we should be right now is bored. <laughs> yeah. I think there's a lot of misconception around boredom. Or rather, we have hundreds of years of like understanding of boredom from philosophers and literary sorts who obviously don't have didn't look at the science. They looked at the end result of boredom. Um, you know, so you have you have your Western philosophers like Jean Paul Sartre called boredom like is a leprosy of the soul. And I think that's still the stereotypical view of boredom that most of us have. And of course, so if we have that view, then we would judge people who go to the bars and the happy hours and the parties, we would judge them very harshly. And maybe some of them deserve that. <laughs> like, let's be totally honest, like some people are flouting the rules. And it's just because they think that they're um, immortal, and everyone else around them is too, apparently. Um but the more generous view and probably the view that matters more for public health is really understanding, well, why, you know, why are people behaving in these really sort of ways that don't make any sense? <laughs> like, why would you put people at risk? Um, and so boredom research in recent years has really um, said, let's take away these negative connotations of boredom. Let's strip that away from it, from the general meaning of boredom. And let's just look at it more neutrally. Maybe boredom's just a signal and it's telling you, hey, I need to make a change. I am bored of doing this puzzle and I want to do something else. Um, you know, I want to go out and socialize, which is normally totally fine. Um, you can imagine in a pandemic that is not totally fine. And so what these boredom researchers are saying that we have this signal um, and it means two things. It can mean a loss of attention, like we are Usually we think of it as being understimulated, like the thing that we're doing is no longer interesting. But also you can be overstimulated. A lot of research on schools, um, school children has shown this, that if their math being a good example, going back to your early example, like if, if the math is too challenging, they're bored. That makes no sense. It, it's over their heads. So it's just information that makes no sense. And so that's boring. Oh, my goodness. Uh, I'd never thought of that before. Yes. Fascinating, right? And wow. then the other side of it, so there's two sides. So there's the loss of focus, which uh, we have a lot of that right now. There's a you know a lot of doom scrolling going on that short changes, as a, especially as a journalist, that just sort of makes it very hard to focus, um, like we did a year ago. And then there's a loss of meaning, which is sort of the I guess the deeper side. You know, even the philosophers sort of saw boredom as an existential crisis, and it sort of depends. Like you say, this is a mini existential crisis, or has this become a a really full-blown existential crisis, um, you know, and loss of meaning comes from much like ritual. In this case, it comes from loss of routine often. Just getting that cup of coffee gives our life, our daily life, some level of meaning. You know, scientists have actually measured that. Um, and so you can sort of imagine, as one researcher very, you know, like profoundly told me, if you've lost both your attention, your ability to pay attention, and your sense of meaning in life, that's quote unquote doubly bad. <laughs> you know? So we're so. both kind of overwhelmed and underwhelmed. Yeah. We're like underwhelmed by our loss of routine and we're overwhelmed by the stimulation of just 2020 as a dumpster fire. Precisely. <laughs> yeah. Doubly bad. <laughs> so I was actually wondering, you know, when you ask people why we're all not doing so great right now, they will say, oh, it's the looming stress of the pandemic. We are overwhelmed, the constant grind of working from home with kids. And no one really thinks about the stress of the boredom. 
And I was wondering, you know, what does boredom do to us kind of on an emotional level? Well, so going back to the idea that it's just a signal, it's telling you to do something else. Mm -hmm. Um, But then what do you do with that information? Honestly, even pre-pandemic, a lot of us weren't really great at handling that signal. We did just what we do when we lose rituals. We watched too much TV. We ate too much cookies. We drank too much. You know, like, we did all these things that, you know, boredom is such a horrible feeling that we did all these things to just avoid it. Um, and so now we have sort of boredom and this reimagined view of boredom. We have boredom. Um, and not a lot of way to either ignore it or even address it head on. Like we just sort of have to live with it, which we hate. Um, and Kendra probably talked about this, but like one of the classic studies is, um, and it's on undergraduates and, and the younger you like sort of that teen age group is not surprisingly more prone to boredom, um, as are men. But so anyway, they looked at undergraduates and they put them in a, just an empty room and said, Hey, you got to sit alone here with your thoughts. They took away their cell phones. <laughs> and, uh, and the only thing they could do if they wanted to was push a button to self-administer an electric shock. Um, and like something like two thirds of the guys in the study and over a quarter of the women in the study pushed that button because sitting alone with their thoughts was more painful than receiving an electric shock. Um, so we're just really not great at handling, at handling boredom. It actually, the, the emotional impacts of boredom have actually made me think about, um, meditation. <laughs> Oddly. <laughs> um, but it's a thing that I, I, you know, see pushed a lot for dealing with anxiety and for dealing with feeling overwhelmed. Um, mm-hmm. but it's also a way to handle boredom, right? It gives you something to do. Yeah, I think I didn't look at mindfulness as, as much, but there is definitely a link between, um, because boredom is, is this feeling that we associate with such negative things. Um, sort of taking, I sound like, a, I feel like I sound like a therapist, but this is where, where I felt like at the end of my interviews, where the best we can do is sort of label the feeling that we're having and then accept it for what it is. Like we've been trained to think boredom is bad. So we push it aside. But if we begin to, and then I think you start getting into this idea of mindfulness. Um, you know, and the other important thing to say is that we sort of belittle boredom um, at our own peril. Like boredom has been tied to um, anxiety and depression. There's some preliminary work, preliminary work showing that, um, people who become depressed, actually one of the first signs might be boredom, which makes sense because loss of meaning and things you once enjoyed is sort of a classic hallmark of depression. Um, and so, you know, I think that, that on some level we have to grapple with our own boredom because it is sort of, you know, I don't know what level of existential crisis the world is in. But many people are experiencing some level of, of like, what, what the heck, you know, what is this? What is going on? Um, I can't make any sense of it. (laughs) I can't either. It kind of (laughs) leaves me screaming into the void. But, you know, I have to say, thank you so much for being here. You always help me kind of understand human behavior a little bit better. (laughs) 
Oh, thanks. <laughs> if you'd like to learn more about Sujata Gupta, we've got a link to her work at scienceforthepeople.ca. Next up, we're actually talking more about boredom, but I promise it is not going to be dull. Hold on to your hats. It sounds like something you hear from a spoiled kid in the movies. I'm bored. But as Sujata says, there's more to it than that. In fact, boredom, in a way, is part of what has kind of driven this pandemic off the rails. Here to talk about it is Kendra Pierre-Lewis. She's the senior reporter at Gimlet podcast, How to Save a Planet. She usually works on climate recording, but the other week, I guess she got bored and wrote about boredom. Kendra, thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. Now, you wrote a piece recently on boredom, and it made me think a lot because it's so weird. <laughs> we are stressed out by a pandemic and political stuff and working or not working or going to school remotely or not going to school. And it seems like there are 50 million things to occupy the, you know, anxiety treadmills in our minds. So we're all bored. <laughs> Why are we all bored? <laughs> Well, <clears throat> it's a funny story and it's complicated. It's because boredom is more nuanced and more complicated than I think even I knew when I started looking into the subject. Um, I actually didn't begin. I actually began sort of, I had kind of burnt out on reading stories about sort of very privileged people in their third country home and how it was still very difficult for them to deal with the pandemic despite their 9,000 square foot home. Uh, Shout out to that New and, York Times post about like them expanding their five bedroom summer home in the Hamptons. Yes, yeah, like those kinds of stories. I just kind of like couldn't deal with it anymore. And so I went on Twitter um, and asked, you know, on Twitter, like, I really just want to hear stories about normal income people and normal income families and how they were managing to cope in this time of the, you know, of the pandemic. And, and people started flooding me with like the things that they were doing. Um, they were turning regular hikes into geocaching. Um, as they talked in the, about in the story, one woman started a museum <laughs> as one does a socially distanced museum in her apartment complex. Um, and I just kind of got floored at how many people were being so incredibly creative in this time and started wondering like, well, why isn't everyone being that way? Right. Like there was, why are people so desperately hankering to go back to indoor dining and all of these things that we know just aren't safe right now. And that kind of led me down this rabbit hole to boredom and, and boredom. We often think of it as like being just like, nothing is really interesting. Nothing captures our attention and it's true, but it's um, the desire. Uh, one of the researchers I talked to kind of, described it as a desire for desire. And that's the feeling that kids have, right? They want, when they're saying I'm so bored, they want to be doing something, but nothing quite captures their attention. Mm. Nothing quite keeps them engaged. And we've all been there. We live in the golden age of television. You know, we can, we have more television than we could ever possibly watch. And yet we will scroll through Netflix or Hulu or whatever your streaming platform of preference is and declare that there's nothing to watch. Yeah, that's really fascinating. So I, I, I think the desire for desire, I feel like maybe Tolstoy might have said that. <laughs> I think that might be a quote. Um, but I was actually very interested because one of the things that you highlighted in your piece is that some people are bored and some people 
are amazing at not being bored. Yep. And I was wondering kind of what's the difference? What is the difference between someone who is is scrolling through 5,000 channels and being like, I, I can't even, and someone who is somehow not bored right now? So I think boredom research is still kind of really nascent. It's just sort of pivoted for a really, really long time. Researchers thought boredom was inherently negative because it has a lot of um, people who tend to be bored easily tend to it has a lot of negative behaviors associated with it. So you're more likely to do drugs or and have substance abuse. You're more likely to have impulse control issues. You're more likely to gamble. Like there are just all of these sort of negative associations with boredom. And then they realize that part of it might be the population that they most easily had access to, which is college students. And there is sort of a limited number of behaviors that a college student can engage in. And also that, Boredom itself doesn't have to inherently be negative. It just, it's a feeling it makes you want to do something and that some people can channel it really well. What that difference is, like what are, what is it that makes some people more difficult or like less easily bored and other people, they don't really know. There are some sort of demographic differences. So young kids tend to get bored more easily than adults. Um, And boredom kind of peaks in adolescence. So teenagers are the most bored people on the planet. (laughs) Um. And there does seem to be some gender d- divide, like men seem to be a little bit more easily bored than women. Which is, so one thing you kind of mentioned here, and that I kind of got from reading your piece is that boredom is like, it's not the same as depression, because though there's there's kind of the same feeling of, I guess, what researchers call anhedonia. So mm-hmm. anhedonia is where you just don't derive pleasure from the things that usually bring you pleasure. Um and, and that's kind of a characteristic of depression, but it also appears to be a characteristic of boredom. How is boredom different from depression? So when you're depressed, generally, you have that same, you don't want to be doing anything. Um, in the piece, I, I kind of use this, the scene from Legally Blonde where Reese Witherspoon is like laying in bed watching like a trashy soap opera after getting dumped and like hasn't showered in three weeks and like hasn't gone out and done anything. She doesn't want to be doing anything. She's like, she is, I don't want to say she's content in her depression. That's like pretty terrible, but like she doesn't want, like she, in that moment, she doesn't really want to be doing anything. There's no desire to feel differently. She's sort of in the sunken place, if you will. When we're uh, bored, it can often manifest as like, it's a really deeply, deeply, deeply unpleasant feeling. And we're highly motivated to escape it. That's why kids will often, you know, it's kind of like, um, it's like an itchy under your skin feeling almost, you know, like you, you are desperately trying to find something that will capture your attention. Whereas depression, it's almost a retreat from self in many ways, right? Like we're not trying to get engaged in any way. We're, we're turning inward. Oh yeah. That's a good point. Um, and you mentioned in your article, like you mentioned that kids will go very far to get away from boredom. Adults will too. <laughs> they will uh, go yeah. so far. <laughs> So far, it was bananas. So there was a, a one of the ways that you study boredom is you have to get make people bored. And so there was a study where they put people in a like an empty room, um, and they couldn't write, they couldn't do anything. They just had to sort of sit in this empty room. But the empty room wasn't fully empty. It, they were also hooked up to an electrical system that where they could administer an electrical shock to themselves. And one dude shocked himself a hundred and ninety times. 
I mean, part of me kind of wonders, like, you know, if you're into that, man. <laughs> I I mean, some people, I I don't know, like, two or more consenting adults, whatever. Um, but yeah, it, it's just amazing. People, and, and these were not comfortable electrical shocks. These were painful electrical yeah. <laughs> electrical shocks. And um, and that's kind of a good example of like. I don't want to go so far as to say that boredom is hardwired. We don't know how you get to that place. <laughs> you know what I mean? Where you're willing to shock yourself, yourself 190 times. But there was a gender split um, or a sex split. Like men were more likely to shock themselves than women were. Um, I believe it was like 60, roughly 60% of the men shocked themselves, but only a quarter of the women. So when we talked about, when we talk about this, when we talk about, okay, you know, the difference between boredom and depression, this itchy under your skin feeling, the, you know, the fact that people will electrically shock themselves to not be bored. Um, it, you, you said that, you know, scientists are now acknowledging that it's not a universally negative thing, but it does sound pretty negative. Like, we're all going to go out and we'll be bored. And so we'll all go out and do drugs and spread COVID and or then then can. well then you realize that you know then you start getting into like are people who get bored somehow not as virtuous as people who are puritanically keeping themselves occupied you know and it gives this really negative edge to boredom so why is boredom not negative um so it's what you do with it right so we have like um that woman who who created a children's museum in her apartment building and actually ended up creating like a global children's museum. And so she, she said that like, she always had all this like tumbler full or dryer full of ideas running around in her head. And she had always wanted to be more than a museum administrator. And the pandemic gave her that opportunity to like do something else. Um, and I interviewed another guy, Greg Swan, who takes his children on socially distanced road trip. And he says that it's allowed himself. He's, he, he's, he works in advertising. He's traditionally traveled quite a lot every year. And he said that sort of being confined to this small area relatively because he tries to stay within 60 miles of Minnesota has forced him to be deeply, deeply creative, but also to intimately know this place in a very different way and to find the smaller details far more interesting. Um, and it sort of fundamentally changed the way he sort of looked at this place that he's lived in for quite some time. And so, it, and, it, and and you see things all of that, all over the place. I'm, I'm not saying that like you should use a pandemic as an opportunity to like get ahead and learn new skills and become more competitive on the job market. Or but write, can, like, write the next American, <laughs> great American novel. Great American novel, right? Like If I hear one more tweet. <laughs> <laughs> we are still in the middle of a pandemic and it is incredibly stressful. And one of the, you know, one of the things that I think both of what they do did have in common is it was activities that brought them great joy and pleasure. So we're not, ask, you know, it's not just that the things that they were doing, were involved like intense thinking to a certain degree, which I think it did, but it's also that it was like fun. And I, I was speaking with a researcher and he, and you know, I talked to him specifically about what Greg was doing because Greg doesn't just take his kids on socially distant road trips. He breadcrumbs it. Like he gives the kids hints all week so that they become really amped up and that they're like excited, like trying to figure out what they're doing that weekend. Um, and he was like, yeah, so they've kind of created this norm and the structure, which is we don't interact with people outside of our household, which we shouldn't be doing because of the pandemic. And the structure of like anticipation such that it is much easier to deny yourself like the regular pleasures that we're used to if you have this thing that you're looking forward to. And it's not that far away, right? Like it's once a week. Mm. Okay. So it's like 
you know, sucking it up and eating your vegetables now in favor you get of like, dessert. An, yeah, but like an epic slice of chocolate cake. <laughs> <laughs> and so you actually spoke to several scientists about this. And um, I was really interested in this preprint study, um, which means the study is not yet peer reviewed. It might undergo some major changes before it's finally really published. It's always something to keep in mind when we're talking about preprints. Um, but this piece is by a scientist named James Boylan, and he argued that people who are not easily bored are heroes of the COVID-19 pandemic. Um, what, what exactly was he saying here? Yeah, so he did um, this interesting study where he just sort of looked uh, it was like through mechanical Turk. He surveyed a, um, a bazillion people. That's a you know very precise scientific number, and um, over their behaviors. And it was a small but significant, statistically significant number. Essentially, that if you were more easily bored, you were less likely to maintain social distancing, and you were slight. That was like significant. And this um, small but statistically significant number of people were also more likely to get COVID. Mm. Um, which makes sense, right? Like if you're not socially distancing, you're increasing your likelihood of getting COVID-19. Um, and so if you're not easily bored, you're more likely to maintain social distancing because you can find other outlets for your energy. And this didn't make it into the piece because it's not, um, we hinted at it, but it's not causal. Uh, it's correlative, but um, that big motorcycle rally in South Dakota, right? Oh, the Sturgis motorcycle that, rally. Mm-hmm, that was a super spreader event. They pulled the Washington Post, I believe, pulled cell phone data on people who attended the rally. Mm-hmm. And what they found was even before the rally, the, that group of people moved around way more than like the general pop- population. But I mean, you can't necessarily say that's because they right. were bored. They bored. could right. have just been poor. not doing social distancing no matter what. Yeah. And that we get into that in the piece, not the social distancing, no matter what, but um, that if you are high, not like the, so they tr- essentially trained, it's a different study, also in preprint. Um, they trained a bunch, they surveyed a bunch of people to kind of get their baseline behaviors. And then they trained them in planning to, and how they can maintain social distancing. Yes. You mentioned this. It's uh, I think it's by a scientist who is, I'm going to say, pronounced make Bilek. Mm-hmm. And I may have mispronounced that. And I am sorry, Dr. Bilek. Um, <laughs> and that was looking at how to kind of promote social distancing behaviors. Right. Um, because he had also similarly published an earlier study that also looked at boredom and social distancing and had found similar things to what Dr. Boylan had found. And he essentially, so they essentially trained them. And this is like a pretty standard practice in, in, in planning. It's like a, uh, and, and like, if this happens and that, if you feel this way, what will you do instead? And it was, you know, you had to come up with, generate your own answers. And what he found was the people who, if you were easily bored, well, in, in a sense, they found two things. If you were easily bored, the planning helped you maintain social distancing. Um, and it kind of makes sense because when we're bored, just generally like out in the wild, we tend to reach for the things that in the past have given us pleasure or satiated that feeling, right? Right. So and so that actually it's interesting. That's that's a, a technique that you'll come across also speaking to therapists. Um 
and who are dealing with, you know, um, for example, trying to uh, therapize. Is that sort of verb therapize? <laughs> um, trying to uh, help people with, you know, say anxiety or trauma. Um, they will produce if then scenarios. So if I come across this scenario, what will I do? And kind of offer people the opportunity to plan. Um, it's just very interesting to see something kind of brought from the world of, you know, mental illness to boredom. <laughs> um, well, but we are- people were able to plan, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, because I mean, it, it uh, it's, it's true because, uh, I've mentioned this before, but one, it's interesting. One of the habits that I picked up during the pandemic is jump roping. That's awesome. And I talked to um, a psychiatrist about this. <laughs> Not, that sounds very random. I was looking into a different story and I was like, well, I have you on the phone. Why am I jump roping? Um, <laughs> this is deeply strange to me, but I love it right now. And he, the first question he asked me was, did you jump rope a lot as a kid? And I said, yes, all the time. I was constantly jump roping. Um, and he was like, oh, well, it's nostalgic and it's harkening back to a time that was like comforting to you. Um, it's repetitious and repetitious behaviors tend to be relatively soothing to humans. Um, and it's physical activity and physical activity helps lower your anxiety. Right. So I was unconsciously reaching for a tool that I didn't even know. <laughs> you know like, like, I was going deep. I was going to my elementary school years and that's kind of what we do when we're bored. You know, we don't, or many of us do when we bored, we're bored. Like the way that we've traditionally dealt with boredom in a lot of ways is we go hang out with friends. Or we go to a restaurant or we go to a concert or we go to all of these things. And so many people, if you don't have a plan and we're so motivated to escape this feeling, they reach for these default behaviors that right now are just very dangerous. Right. So the default behaviors that we have are kind of, you know, go out, see people. Um, but you actually picked a default behavior that like digs even deeper. <laughs> into your childhood psyche. <laughs> yeah, and and we can have another episode where we unpack why I did that. Um <laughs> I'm actually very curious as to why you did that. I have no idea. I literally I didn't even um I had a jump rope. Uh but I wasn't like looking for it. I found it at the ba- bottom of a yoga mat bag. I was doing yoga over um Zoom with my little sister and I found the jump rope and instantly I was like, "Oh, this is what I've been missing." Like, like this is the thing that my life needs right now. So it's very interesting because boredom is, as you've mentioned, we are desperate to get away from it. We have this like itchy under the skin feeling. Um, How does planning kind of help with that? How does planning, you know, help people maintain social distancing and prevent them just being like, "Uh, I can't, I'm going to the bar. It gives them other tools. They can try other things before they reach for the bar. Right? Okay. Instead of grabbing the most immediate thing in your um, vicinity, you have like a like I'm even doing this for um, I'm taking vacation in a week and I'm literally making a list of all the things that you can do on vacation, which, again, I think says a lot about my psyche. <laughs> Mostly because I think what happens is you get to vacation, you get to a space and you forget what your options are. Yes. Because a lot of times you're going somewhere. Right. And, and so like, you know, my, my vacation list is things like make a quilt or 
finish your, I've been making these, um, I call them pandemic patches. So they're like Girl Scout patches of all the things I've learned or attempted in the pandemic. Um, <laughs> uh, and, and it's not a list of things I have to do. This is not a to-do list. This is a, a, like a list of options. So that while I have like this two and a half weeks time off, I have other things to do besides watch Netflix. I really like that. And it's actually something you brought up a little bit in the piece. You mentioned that there is a link between boredom and self-control. Mm-hmm. What is that? Like, how are these two things kind of linked? So in essence, people who have lower self-control also seem to be more easily bored. And one of the questions that I asked them that when they were talking about the planning perspective I, and they listed some examples and I was like, Oh, I just do that all the time. And he was like, yeah, some people, that's just how they're wired. They're making plans and they don't even realize that they're making plans. Okay. So that's um, why planners might be a little better equipped here. Right. I also so, just love that scientists are coming up with ways to fight boredom and doing scientific studies. And in my head, the scientist was sitting here going, I'm bored. And like another scientist was like, well, go do a scientific study. But I don't want to. (laughs) (laughs) So I wanted to ask, you know, people are bored. And it's actually almost worse right now. Um, I in the first half of the program, I was speaking to Sujata Gupta talking about the holiday season, and we're unmoored from all of our usual rituals. So not only are we bored, we don't have a lot of the usual group things that would have made us not bored. And a lot of us are un- unemployed. And a lot of us have kids at home. Um, and so I was wondering, you asked people for their anti-boredom stories. <laughs> Do you have anti-boredom stories you can share? Um, oh, um, one woman that I, I follow on Twitter, um, I'm, I'm going to butcher her name. Her name is Vicky. I think, I think, uh, her, her, her Twitter handle is something like red squirrel. Um, her father bought the, she's living with her family, um, right now because of the pandemic and her father bought the family a treadmill, um, so that they could continue to exercise even if the weather wasn't great or even if the, you know, the numbers got so bad that even going outside and kind of around in the neighborhood didn't feel like a good idea. And it came in a giant box. So she decided to take, she didn't want to throw out the box. She was like, it feels too large to throw out the box. So she took a corner of the home and built herself a cardboard office. It's kind of almost like the size of a small phone booth. You can sit in it. There's a desk and it's completely constructed from cardboard. Um, Which, you know, is awesome. I think um, I'm trying to think of other. I have to say, I'll be honest. That kind of sounds like my podcasting studio a little bit. (laughs) Is it made out of a single cardboard box? It is not, but it's made out of a large series of quilts. (laughs) (laughs) So basically she kind of built herself a fort. She did out of a giant cardboard box. Um, There's a fake clock on the wall, but the hands didn't actually signal any time because time doesn't exist in the pandemic. What is time? (laughs) That's um, a wonderful artistic <laughs> touch. <laughs> I've uh, a lot of kids have taken up chess, which is interesting. Well, um, the Queen's Gambit. Yeah, even before the Queen's Gambit came out, actually, um, oh, really, there was a lot of pandemic gardening. Oh, one family which I thought was really lovely. They since they couldn't travel anymore, they opted to buy regional treats from small obscure candy companies all over the country. 
Ooh, that is tempting. Uh, they they said that the Neko wafers were highly recommended, but the Idaho Spud, which is um, some sort of a chocolate thing, they did not recommend. <laughs> Sorry, Idaho. I've not tried it. Idaho um, has many other wonderful things about it, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so I was also interested because you mentioned um, when we were talking this morning, you told me your own anti-boredom story, um, which is kind of like ordering candy, only in this case it's ordering donuts. Oh, um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I have to say, um, it's been really interesting. Um, like, I've been thinking a lot about the link between self-control and boredom, because what I've realized is that my solution to boredom is I no longer have any self-control. I can do whatever I want as long as it's safe. Um, <laughs> so you're exercising kind of one important point of self-control, which is safety and kind of letting the other one slide. Mm-hmm. Which is how I ended up. Um, uh, I was on Instagram last week and a friend tweeted uh, or grammed a photo of um, a donut. And I decided that I desperately needed a donut. Um, but I moved to a new community and I don't, and it's not as COVID safe as I would like it to be. So I don't go to stores if I can avoid it in any way. And I actually don't know where like the best donuts are. So I went online and I discovered this website that will ship you food from local, small local producers all over the country. And that, um, apparently the best donut in the world comes from this donut shop in Chicago. And so I just ordered a dozen and they should be here today. I am very jealous right now, actually, because now I'm thinking like, about it. I want a donut. <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, like I've done all sorts of like this is this year. Um, I think in April, maybe I realized April or May, I realized that you can order oysters and that, in fact, ordering oysters helps oyster farmers because of the pandemic. Um, oysters are generally eaten in restaurants. And because of the pandemic, most of us are not going inside restaurants. So we're not eating oysters. And oysters are actually one of a more climate friendly food. There's, they do a lot of like rebuilding and protection. And so I was like, I decided that, of course, I was going to order oysters and ordered something like 96 oysters, which is special. That is an obscene um, amount of oysters. I'm not going to lie. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and I did not own a shucker. And so I ordered an oyster shucker, but it did not come in time. Um, The oysters got there well before the shucker did. Um, So I learned how to shuck an oyster with a screwdriver. Wow. (laughs) That that is a COVID skill. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And I feel like I've engaged in a lot of these kind of vaguely ridiculous, mostly somehow centered on food behaviors. Well, thank you. That is actually amazingly inspirational (laughs) thank you for being here with us and uh sharing your anti-boredom behaviors it was the opposite of boring uh thanks for having me bethany (laughs) if you'd like to learn more about kendra pierre lewis and her writing on boredom and on other topics because she usually writes about climate we've got links at scienceforthepeople.ca while you're there do you want to subscribe our back catalog will keep you from being bored And until you hear us again, stay safe and stay occupied. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time on Science for the People. Science for the People is listener supported. You can find us on Patreon, where you can support us with monthly donations in any amount. 
Your support keeps us afloat and able to keep making great new episodes, and we thank you for it. The show is produced by Rochelle Saunders and edited by Ryan Bromsgrove. We get help with special projects from K.O. Myers. Our theme song was written and recorded by Fractal Pattern, and its title is Binary Consequence. The show is hosted by Bethany Brookshire, Anika Hazra, Marion Kilgour, and me, Rochelle Saunders. Thank you.